Various places I will call Incline your ear to me anew And hear my cry for mercy Counts my sinful ways. How could I come before your throne? Yet full forgiveness meets my gaze. I stand redeemed by grace alone. So your hope and God in his power to say completely and forever on by Christ emerging from the grave completely and forever on by Christ emerging from the grave let's pray together dear Jesus worthy of praise, God. We thank you for the opportunity to come and lift songs of truth to you, God. We pray this morning as we open your word, the truth, Lord, that you would speak to us, God, that you would change our hearts, God, we love you, we trust you, we lean upon you in Christ, and we pray, amen. The book of 2 Samuel has, is much like many other books in the New and Old Testament, has a, a series of themes that kind of, kind of work their way through from the beginning to end. Uh, in fact, some of these themes are repeated over and over, so it begins challenging for us to make sure that we continue to stay the course so we can allow those truths to have their way in our hearts, to bring about the change that God would want to bring about through this study in the book of 2 Samuel. Now, some of these repeated themes we actually looked at last week in the beginning, the first three verses of chapter 20. Uh, there we looked at two in particular. One, one dealt with this idea of continued rebellion, seeing that all the way through the book. And what we learned was this, is that, is that God's authority is greater than our excuses. That is, when God commands us to do something, we can make all the excuses we want in the world. But the truth of the matter is, is none of them will ultimately validate us from being disobedient to God. We also looked at this continuing theme of not only continued rebellion, but continued devastation, specifically of sin. We saw that David experienced that firsthand. He had sinned against Bathsheba, but it didn't end there. The pain and the misery continued on for years to come, not only with Bathsheba, but for ten other women as well. And so we saw these themes kind of played out. And now at the last part of chapter 20, for the rest of it, I think there's one more repeated theme that we revisit before we get to chapter 21. And it really deals with this idea of professing one thing and doing another. If you look through the chapter, or you look through the book, you'll find all these different characters. You'll find David, and Absalom, and, and Amasa, and Abishai, Joab, all these different characters. And the truth is, if you were to ask them, they would all profess that they were followers of God. 
that they were all a part of God's kingdom, if you will. But as the story continues to unfold, we find out that what many of them profess is not actually reality. It's not actually what they are doing. So here's the theme that we find, and we want to track through the rest of chapter 20 this morning. Here it is. Allegiance to God must go beyond outward appearances. God's or allegiance to God must go beyond mere uh, uh, outward appearances. Now, here's how this is going to work. I'm going to try to get through the rest of 20, explain it, bear with me, a lot of explanation. Then we're going to begin to break this thing down and draw some application to it. But if you weren't here last week, chapter 20 actually begins with a man by the name of Sheba that begins to rebel and lead the northern kingdom of Israel in rebellion against David. And David finds him to be so much of a threat that he immediately begins to move by telling, uh, w- telling one of his commanders, Amasa, to actually follow and to pursue and to go after Sheba and to be able to strike him down. And so he says, here's where I want you to do. In three days, I want you to show up. You're going to be leading the army to pursue him. But he doesn't show up in three days. And the Bible doesn't tell us why he was late at this appointment. But David, not wanting to stall any longer, he turns to another one of his commanders, a man by the name of Abishai, and he says, look, go after it. So they begin to set out, he and all the army, and as they begin to pursue him, along the way somewhere, Amasa, the, the late commander, he ends up showing up with them. And we find out in verse 8 that this really causes a huge problem. And the hint is found in the first two words in the beginning of verse 8. If you look at it, it says, now Joab. Now Joab. Now this is not a good thing. And let me explain why this is not a good thing. Joab used to be the commander of David's army. Uh, He used to run it until he ended up killing David's son and was demoted. Nobody likes to be demoted. But what's worse about being demoted is when the person who takes your place is your arch rival and your enemy, a man by the name of Amasa, who was trying to kill you formerly. So Joab sits back and he goes, I don't like one bit of this. And so we find out the story ends up unfolding. Notice what happens. It says that Joab was wearing a soldier's garment and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened to his thigh, and that's where I wear my sword, and, um, and, and he went forward and it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kill him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Now, apparently, in the midst of all of this, the enemy is watching, and they don't, or the, the army is watching, and they don't know what to do with it. They don't know what to make of it. On one hand, you have Joab that used to command them, good commander, but, but, but sorry in his obedience to the king, and he's been demoted, and now he's just killed the very man that David himself has chosen to lead them. They're not sure where to go and what to be able to do. And so, so Joab and the rest, one man stands up for them, and, and he says, hey, he says, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let them follow David. So the whole group kind of, as I imagine, it begins to move down the road and in pursuit of of Sheba, Uh, but some of them keep kind of looking at this dead man on the ground, Amasa, the commander that they were supposed to be following. And and the Bible distinctly says that he was wallowing in a pool of blood. All this is very, very gross. You can't make this stuff up, right? And so there they are, and, and they're getting tripped up. And finally, one of Joab's men says, man, just get rid of the body. They grab the body, they throw it over into the ditch, they cover it up. Finally, they're headed out to go to Sheba. Now let me, or after, after Sheba. Now let me explain what happens. 
they find this man in the further north, and he is, he is actually hidden uh, around this fortified wall. And so they want to be able to get in. So what they do is they basically build a bridge, and, and, and they begin to take a, 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 a big old machine that, that comes that begins to knock a hole inside of this wall. Well, as they're, as they're banging into this wall, the people on the inside of the city go, this is not good. This man's going to come in, and he's ultimately going to kill us. And so, at that point, a woman, a very wise woman, and by the way, women are all wise because they get us out of trouble, and so she ends up saving the day. She actually looks over to the wall, and she goes, hey, Joab. He's like, yeah. She goes, man, why are you going to come, and you're going to kill us all? And she's, I don't know if that's really the accent she had, but... Uh, <laughs> But, but uh, I don't even know why I did that. But she comes in, and, and, and he goes, hey, look. She goes, I'm not here to kill everybody. He goes, I just want to kill this one man. And he goes, so if you throw his head over the wall, uh, we'll call it even, and we'll, 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 we'll just go away. And she's like, give me just un momento. So she walks over, and she begins to talk to everybody inside of, uh, of um, uh, the city walls. And they agree it's better that one person would die and the rest would go free. So all of a sudden, pew, head goes flying over the wall. And then they leave. The Bible. Don't get mad with me. The Bible, all right? And so they, they go ahead and they walk away. Now, when we look at this, again, a couple weeks ago, I said, I really just don't know what to do with this character, Joab. On one side, he seems to be the guy that is all about David, seems to be faithful to David in some ways. He's a guy that gets things done, if you will, like mafia type of get things done. He's the type of guy that gets things done that nobody else wants to get done, but that needs to be done. He, he seems to be an effective commander of David, crazy effective, in fact. And at least on the outward appearances, he seems to be about David all the time. On the other hand, he seems to be a loose cannon, He's constantly disobeying David and his commands. Let me give you a few very quick examples that we've seen the process through his life in this, this life of disobedience. In 2 second, in, in Samuel chapter 2, uh, the very first time we saw this was a, with a man by the name of Abner. Abner. Abner was the commander of Saul's army, David's arch enemy. And Abner has a change of heart, not really, but he realizes that things are changing and things are beginning to go the way of David. So he jumps ship from Saul, goes over to David and says, hey, I want to make peace with you. In fact, I want you to be the next king of Israel. And so David welcomes him in. They have um, some food together. He sends him off and he, and he sends him away in peace. Well, when Joab finds out that Abner had been there, he is irate. And he said, how could you have him inside here? And you didn't put him to death. He's your enemy. You were unwise for doing so. So Abner, or Joab, runs out of the house, tracks down Abner before he can even get out of the city walls. He says, Abner, I want to talk with you. And he comes over to him, and he takes out a hidden sword, and he drives it through the man, and he dies on the spot. The real clue, the real truth about this text, what it's teaching us is stay away from close proximity with, with Joab, right? That's really what it's teaching us because you have a tendency of having your entrails hang out. And so this is, this is what happens within the text. And so this is the first time he disagrees. The second time, or disobeys, the second time that he disobeys with, was with David's son, um, Absalom, there we go, with lots of names, with David's son, Absalom. And you remember, David. this was David's son, and he wanted to kill David. He wanted to be able to take his throne. And he was now trying to kill David and his men. Well, David, before he sends his men out to fight him, tells him what? Hey, deal gently with my son. Well, apparently, 
Uh, either, either Absalom didn't hear, or Joab didn't hear what he was saying, or he has a really weird way of determining and defining gentle, because the Bible says that he took three javelins in his hand, and he thrust them into the heart of Absalom. This was blatant disobedience to the command of God. And then we get to another example right before us today. Here's a story about Amasa. And the Bible says that Amasa was to take his place. He was demoted as, as, as a commander. And now Amasa was supposed to lead his troops. He takes his position back and he ends up killing the commander over David's army. I don't know about you, but I'm beginning to see a pattern here with this Joab character. Joab is outwardly all about David. He's constantly promoting him. He's constantly singing his praises. He, he, he's constantly, everything seems to be indicating that he's about David. But the truth of the matter is the closer you look, you find out that he's really not about David at all. He's about himself. He's willing to obey David only as long as it ends up securing his own position. And the crazy part is he's really good at it. He's like a cat. He's got like nine lives. He always ends up on his feet. And I don't even like cats, but I'm using that as an analogy. But what happens is he ends up, every time he does something wrong and even disobeys, it seems like David the king passes over, overlooks his sin, and he ends up on top of the world. It's exactly what happens here. He was even banking on this. He was believing to himself, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to kill this guy, this, this guy, this guy, Amasa. And then what I'm going to do, though, is then I'm going to go and kill Sheba. But when I get back, David will be so elated that I killed his arch enemy that he won't even notice that I killed Amasa. And that's precisely what happened. David seemed to be turning a blind eye every, every step of the way to Joab's sin against him until 1 Kings. When we get to 1 Kings, we actually find out what happens with Joab. David, on his deathbed, pulls Solomon over and he says, Solomon... Here's how I want you to deal with my useful but evil nephew, Joab. Let me read what he says. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 9, it says, Now therefore do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do with him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. What is he saying? You're going to bring final judgment on this guy because of his sins and because of his disobedience. That's what he's telling him to do. And it's exactly what happens. The Bible goes on and tells us that Solomon calls a man by the name of Benaiah. And he goes, go strike him down. And so Benaiah goes after him. And, and Joab was smart enough, chicken, but he's, he's smart enough that he ends up hiding in the tent of the Lord. The Lord's tent. And so he goes, hey, you got to come out. I, I, I got to kill you. And he goes, I'm not coming out. You're going to have to come in and kill me if you want to kill me. And so Benaiah doesn't know what to do. So he goes back to Solomon and he tells him everything that happens. Here's what Solomon says. He says, do as he said. Strike him down and bury him and thus take away from me and from my father's house the guilt of the blood that Joab shed without cause. The Lord will bring back his bloody deeds on his own head because without the knowledge of my father David, he attacked and he killed with a sword two men more righteous and better than himself. And the Bible says, and Benaiah went out and he struck him down and he put him to death. After all of this, I finally came to a conclusion about what to do with Joab. After looking about his profession and looking at how he lived his life, and then looking at how his life ended up in ultimate judgment against the king, I now begin to understand what's going on. 
You know, there were some people who loved to be able to have what they call a life verse. Maybe you have one of these. It's usually a verse that's encouraging to someone or it gives them direction. And it could be a matter of different verses. It could be John 3.16, Philippians 4.13, as long as it's uh, in, in, in appropriate context. Uh, we know in Proverbs 3, verse 6, all types of texts that are important. Well, Joab easily has a life verse. And it be found in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. This is not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is not what you want your life verse to be, by the way. This is probably, what, as far as I'm concerned, one of the most sobering and terrifying passages in all the, the scriptures. How in the world is it possible that somebody could profess Christ all their life even do great things and attempt great things and accomplish great things in the name of Jesus, only to be able to find out that one day when they stand before God in the final judgment, they, they were never in the faith truly. That's astonishing. But what's even more astonishing is that this is not a hypothetical. And what's even more astonishing is it's not just something that could happen to a person. What's astonishing is the fact that Jesus himself says many on that day will say, and this blows me away that this is, this, is, this is possible at all. What we find is that there will be some people who will profess faith in Christ, who will do all types of things in the name of Jesus Christ. But the truth is, one day it will be revealed that they weren't doing it for the glory of God. They were doing it for their own self-promotion. They weren't doing it for the right reasons whatsoever. Or in another way to say it, allegiance to God must go beyond mere outward appearances. See, the statement that Jesus makes is clear in many ways, and we're going to attack that. But in other ways, it really causes some confusion and some strife and some pain for some people, and we don't want that at all. So in order to really understand Joab's life and what that is teaching us, as well as Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, I think what we need to do is we need to address both the problems and then also the clarity of Jesus' words. Let me give two of them. Let's clear this up. First of all, when Jesus said... What he said in chapter 7 and verse 21, that, not, that, that there will be some that will say, Lord, Lord, but yet will not enter the kingdom of heaven because they did not do the will of the Father. What, what he is not saying is he's not suggesting that Christians are perfect. Amen? Do you know a perfect Christian? No. You don't know a perfect Christian. None of us do. We, we all fail. There, we experience many uh, momentary lapses of faith through the course of our life. Uh, we believe, we, every believer will fail. We're going to stumble. We're to fall in many ways and in many times. There will be times in your life and my life that we feel like we are going to bust underneath the weight of temptation and sin. Have you ever gotten to the point, even being saved many, many years later and been walking with the Lord for a part time, for a long time, that the Holy Spirit illuminates sin inside of your life and you're wondering, how in the world do I rid myself of this? 
How long, God, will I end up keep struggling with this same sin over and over, and you want nothing more than to be able to be freed from it? What I am saying is that is not a sign, per se, of an unbeliever. It may very well be a sign of a believer in Jesus Christ because they are pursuing change and forgiveness and transformation in their life. We know that they sin because Jesus instructed believers to pray this way, forgive us our sins as we forgive those that sin against us. And the whole idea there is, is there's no reason for a believer to be forgiven if, they're ever, if they come to the point where they're perfect. So none of us are perfect, and that's not what Jesus is speaking about at all. He's not saying, be perfect and you'll be accepted by me. Jesus instead really clarifies what he means by sinfulness when he, when he speaks of workers of lawlessness. See, the verb tense there in the Greek is a present participle, which, speaks, uh, which indicates a continuous regular action. Jesus isn't talking about us stumbling in and out of sin or even struggling for a long period of time. What he's talking about is, is continuous, uh, a continuous regular action of sin, a habitual sin, which remains the normal pattern of the life of an individual. In other words, if you were to define their life, you would sit back and look at their life and not say faithful. You look at their life and say unfaithful. Not pursuing God, not seeking the will of God in any way, shape, or form. An individual that Jesus says, he says, if you want to know what a believer looks like, he's one who seeks after the will of God and he submits himself to it. He says, a worker of a lawlessness neither seeks nor submits to the will of God. And I want, let, me, let me correct that for a minute. They may seek the will of God, but once again, they're very, very quick to dismiss it and not do it if they don't feel like it's in benefit to them. No problem disobeying God if they don't feel like it's going to help them in any way. So Jesus here was not suggesting that a believer is without sin. Now, one of the ways we could say it is you say, well, if both of them sin, what is the difference? Well, the difference is how we deal with that sin. Would you agree with that? A lost person, they don't mind so much being in sin. In fact, they pursue it. A Christian can't stand sin, falls in it, but can't stand remaining in it. It's kind of the illustration that I've used before of the poodle and the pig. I'm sorry I have to use this because I couldn't think of a better one. So there's not a better illustration than the poodle and the pig? No, there's not. And so here's what happens is there's a poodle and the pig, and, and they have an owner, and the owner ends up going off to work, and both of them get out simultaneously out of the house. And don't ask me why the pig's in the house, but they get out, and they begin to run, and they both collide, and they fall into a big mud, put, mud, mud puddle. And then you begin to find out that both of them were running and fell in for two different reasons. The poodle was running after the master. The pig was running after the mud. Then when they both fall into the mud, the poodle instantly jumps out, begins to lick itself, shake itself off because it does not feel at home inside of the mud. However, the pig stays there and wallows in it. Why? Because he is at home inside of it. This is the difference between a believer, somebody who has been born again, somebody who is not. We fall into sin at many times and in many ways, but it is not the place that you and I can ever feel comfortable for. It's not the thing that we're ultimately pursuing, even though in the moments of our weakness we do it and we even do it willfully. The truth of the matter is, is we, dan we, we don't stay and remain in the midst of it. We can't as believers in Jesus Christ. So he wasn't suggesting that we are somehow perfect, nor was he suggesting, uh, when, he, when he says this, that we could be saved by obeying the commands of God. We understand this, right? 
I say right because there are people here, whether we know it or not, who are still playing by the whole weights game. They're still sitting there going, yes, we believe that we need to have faith in Jesus Christ, but really pragmatically what you're really thinking is maybe I can be good enough and do enough stuff that when I stand before God that my good stuff will outweigh my bad stuff and God will say, you're approved and I get to go into heaven. It's not the way that it works. The Bible says you nor I can ever be good enough to be accepted by God no matter how hard you try, no matter how long you have, we'll never be able to do it. That's the clear teaching of the Word of God. In fact, it teaches us that we are saved by grace through faith alone. That is not of yourselves. It is a what, church? Gift from God, not of works, lest anyone anyone should boast. However, with that said, we have to understand that that even though it is not it is not the means by which we are saved, it is evidence walking with God is evidence to show that we are actually in the faith of God. Uh, Let me give you some examples. This is found throughout the Word of God, this connection between salvation and obedience. Let me give you a couple of passages. John 10, verse 27 says, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus said, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple. Throughout the entire book of James, James says this, he says, Faith without works is dead. He's not saying you need to have faith and you need to have works. He's saying saving faith that doesn't demonstrate submission to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is simply not saving faith. It's just simply not. We have the book of 1 John as well, which the, the Bible says the whole point of the book is these things are written so that you may know that you have eternal life. And then when he begins to tell them how you'll know how eternal life, what does it deal with? The issue of obedience. This is what a Christian life looks like. Now, the question for me is this, is how can Jesus be so certain? How can he be so certain that those that the Father saves, that that they actually are going to be changed? That they're actually now going to live lives of obedience and not lives that would be defined by perpetual disobedience. How in the world does he know that? Is it because Jesus has faith in you? You can do it. You're the best you you can ever be. That you just need to pull yourself up with the bootstraps and just help a little bit better? No, it has nothing to do with you. It has to do with he who is in you, the Holy Spirit. That's how he has confidence. Because with salvation and the forgiveness of our sins, all comes a new you. The Bible tells us in the Word of God in 2 chap- Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 17, it says, if, 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 there, if therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Your nature has changed. Your old nature was a sin nature which only wanted to pursue sin. It couldn't do anything else until Jesus, by his grace, said, I'm going to give you a new heart and I'm going to give you new affections, and I'm going to give you new passions, and I'm going to place my Holy Spirit in you so that you can pursue the things that we want. Now, we will struggle with sinful flesh until the day that these bodies are glorified. They will look much like mine now, but when they are ultimately glorified, right? And so so it's going to happen. That that one day will happen, but when he changes us anew, what happens? What what does this change bring about? He tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, for obedience and submission to God. He's he's given you that ability and that desire, and it's all a work from him. I I love the testimonies of those who come to faith in our church. Not all of them, but 
These are some of my favorite, and I'm actually quoting here. Hey, man, I grew up in church all my life, and I sought to obey God, but it was done begrudgingly, to say the least. To be honest, I was trying to do what was right, but it was exhausting in doing it. I found no joy in it, no happiness at all. But then something happened. Something changed for me. Something changed in me. I, not, I now actually find joy in obeying God. I find joy in talking about the Bible and reading it and hearing it preached and sharing it to others. I'm, I'm grieved when I disobey God, not because I'm afraid of hell, but because I don't want to displease my Lord. There is something in me now that I didn't have before that propels me to follow Christ. What is that? It's a new nature that God by His grace has given us and the empowering indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Now with that said, let me try to give you some clarifying remarks here. Because this is really weird, because this is what happens. You preach on that some people may not be saved who profess that they're saved, and then all the true believers in the congregation begin to doubt their salvation. And then you have lost people who are lost that sit there and go, hey, amen, that was a great sermon. I'm good. Back and forth with Jesus. So what do we do with this? Here, here's my big question is, how in the world does somebody come to this point? How does a person, how does, how does a woman find herself, a man find himself, a child find himself professing Christ all their life, doing things in the name of Jesus, only to find out that they were never born again at the final judgment? How does it even happen? Let me give you a couple of suggestions. Number, number one, poor teaching. Poor teaching. Sometimes the poor teaching shows up in the poor presentation of the gospel. That is, people so badly, for whatever reason, many times good reasons, want to see people accept Christ, get saved, get born again, that in order not to offend or to, or, or, or to keep them from, from receiving Jesus Christ as their Lord, they will water down the scriptures. They will lessen, they will take out any mention of repentance in salvation. They, they may come to the point where they do nothing more than promote what, I would, what would be equivalent to an easy believism. They'll simply say, you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins? Yes, congratulations, you're saved. And then they just say, all is done, you're done, let's get baptized, let's get you into a church. And, and, and though acknowledging truth is essential in salvation, knowing specifically Christ, who He is. He's the Son of God, that He was the God-man, that, he, he, that believe in His death, His burial, and His resurrection. Even though that is essential in salvation, you can still believe all of those things and never be born again, never be transformed. It's the very teaching of the Word of God. James chapter 2, verse 19, he says this, You believe that there is a God, uh, God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The point is, the demons understand the gospel in some ways from an intellectual perspective better than you and I ever will. Well, maybe not ever will, but at least do now. The difference is they've never placed their full weight in the gospel and their faith in that truth. It would be like this. It would be like me bringing up a parachute here this morning. Sorry, we don't have that in the budget to get a parachute. But bring a parachute up here this morning and go, I'm letting you know, behind all the physics, explain all the physics to you and tell you, I'm letting you know that this thing, if you ever jumped out of a plane, this thing would save your life. 
I'm telling you to save your life. And y'all would sit there and go, that's right, I believe that. I believe that that will save my life. And I said, now we're all going to go down to the airport, and we're going to get in the plane, and we're going to put one on, and we're going to jump out of the plane. No, we're not going to go out and get in the airplane and jump out of the plane. No, we're not going to do that. The call of salvation, the call of the gospel, is not to acknowledge that it's true, but it's to put it on, clothe yourself on it, and place your whole weight on that truth for your life. That's what the gospel of Jesus Christ ultimately is. Sometimes poor teaching comes in poor presentation of the gospel. Other times it comes in the affirmation, a poor affirmation of the gospel in the life of another. Let me explain. Sometimes when somebody comes to faith in Christ, people will counsel. This was similar to when I came to faith in Christ. Uh, The counseling went something like this. Hey, listen, we want to let you know we don't ever want you to doubt your salvation from this day forward. Devil's going to come. He's going to try to mess you up, tell you tomorrow morning that you're not saved, but you know that you're saved. You, you, you need to believe it. You never need to doubt. You walked an aisle. You prayed a prayer. You were baptized. You joined the church. You're signed, sealed, and delivered. You're good to go from this point out. And so the person leaves, and, they, and I think that there's good intentions. But what's interesting is this person goes on, and, and ultimately they're under the belief that they could never lose their salvation, which is true. They could never lose their salvation if they were truly born again. We understand that, right? How do you undo salvation? If he changes you, transforms you, cleanses you with the blood of Jesus Christ, makes your, makes, gives you a whole new nature, then how can you become an old, uh, a new nature? You can't. And so we know that we're ultimately born again. The problem, though, in teaching of all of this is that the person, when somebody does come to them and they begin to say to them, hey, bro, there's some things. I know you profess to be a believer, but there's just some things that just are not matching up. It's the Joab effect, right? It's like when we got to Joab, we're like, what do we do with this guy? Is he born again or not? Don't you know people like that in your life where you sit there and go, wow, they profess Christ all the time. They seem to be a part of these things. But when you sit down and actually talk with them, their, their mouth and everything that spills out and everything they do and all their inclinations seem to be far more like the world. And finally, you sit down and you just begin to talk with them and you say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm concerned about this. I'm concerned about really where you are with the Lord because I'm, I'm seeing these things in your life. And then they respond with absolute confidence. I know I'm saved. I walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, and was baptized and joined a church. I'm signed, sealed, and delivered. So because of this promise of once saved, always saved, the, the, the promise is they think that they never even need to question whether they're in the faith or not. And they never take a look at that. There was a, uh, there was a um, evangelist that used to go around. I was at a former church, and, and he, really, he was really the hot ticket uh, of the month because, I mean, he could really draw the net. You know what I mean by that? I mean, brother, he could get up there. Me, I'm the anti-draw-the-net guy. Uh, this guy was a draw-the-net guy. I mean, he, does, he, he says amen, and people just begin to just, yeah, I mean, they throw their babies on stage. I mean, just everything. Just, they're all just, oh, let's all get saved. And so, so and then I figured out how he did it. At this one particular sermon at the end, he basically just said this, and this, this sounds really good, but he sits there and goes, hey, listen, I know some of you are struggling this morning. And he goes, I want to let you know, if you're 99% sure that you're saved, then you're 100% lost. And boy, I'll tell you what, like 100 people came forward. It was amazing. They all came forward. It was so good, in fact, that I was preaching a youth revival the very next week. And I used the same exact comment at the end of the week. People were like, wow, God's really moving. I said, you wait until that last night. (laughs) 
And uh, all of a sudden, I got up and I said to him, I said, young people, listen, if you're 99% sure you're saved, you're 100% lost. And all of a sudden, 43 out of the 45 kids came down to make a profession to Jesus Christ. People say, amen, that's amazing. No, it was a mess. Because then we had to be able to sit back and go, well, did they really all come to faith? Or did, were they all saved or not? And kids are crying. And they're like, man, I thought I loved Jesus. I gave my life to him. I've been following him in obedience. But yet, there's a little bit of uncertainty inside of my life. The problem is, it's just not a true statement. God gave us a whole book in 1 John for people who, 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 who he believed were born again and said, here's how you can be confident that you're truly born again. So there's got to be times that we end up questioning. There's got to be times that are, are kind of difficult and kind of hard. But the truth of the matter is, is we don't need to be able to come to people and we don't need to try to secure them into something that we just don't know if they're truly born again or not. It's not something you can give another person. Parents are notorious for this. Parents are notorious, man. It's almost, you'll, you'll hear parents sometimes. They're like, How, how's everything going? Great. It's going really good. Got three kids. All of them have prayed a prayer. They're, they're 10. They're 8. They're, they're 7. And uh, they've all prayed the prayer. So we're good as parents from here on out, right? And in and the point there is, is you're, you're sitting there going, okay, I, I get this. You're looking for your child to repent and believe and come to faith in Christ. And it may be through demonstration of that is through the prayer that they ultimately prayed. But you can't tell and uh, really truly fully know whether they're born again or not because they prayed the prayer. Would you agree? But here's what parents will often do. They'll have the same speech to their child. That child will go off. They won't walk with the Lord. There will be no desires. There will be no new affections for God whatsoever. And they'll go out and they'll live a life of hell. And then the parent, in order to be able to bring some kind of security to that child, more so security to their own self, will say things like this. They'll say to them, they'll ultimately say, hey, you know what? He says, the only solace that I have is that I know that you were born again. I remember the date, time, and the hour that you were saved. Then the child continues in sin, unrepentant, fully believing and deceived that he's actually been born again. And the truth of the matter is, and you ask him, how do you know that you're saved? And he says, because my parents told me that I was born again and I was saved. And this is just all a horrible thing. Church, you and I can't tell anybody for absolute sure whether they are born again or not. We can help to walk through them the word of God. We can teach them the word of God. But the affirmation of true salvation can only come through the power of the Holy Spirit residing in an individual. That's the truth of the word of God. Now, we understand that sometimes, I'll, I'll say this very quickly, we see here that there's poor, poor teaching that leads to this, but here's another one, and we're going to close with this, is a lack of self-examination. A lack of self-examination. This goes back in part to false teaching, where people just kind of sit there and go, oh, no, I believe those things, I'm good, and I can live whatever way I want to, and that's a demonstration that I've been converted and saved, and they go away with that kind of false gospel notion. But the truth is they never sat down and really analyzed their life to see if they're truly in the faith of Jesus Christ. Again, it is true that once God saves us, we are forever saved. But you have to be saved in order for it to be forever. So there should be a time that you and I sit back and analyze ourselves and question. In fact, we're commanded by this by the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I am far more concerned with the person who has never questioned their salvation than the person who has questioned their salvation. 
Because the truth of the matter is, is when you understand what sin is, you take it seriously. And when you're struggling with sin, you find yourself sitting there going, God, I don't want anything to do with this. I know you came to save me. I know you came to cleanse me. I know you this. Please come. And there's, there's something securing in me to that. And when that person continues to fight, and people, they, they freak out all the time when somebody comes and, and they go, Pastor Mike, I've really, really been struggling with sin. And I go, good. Good. And they say, what do you mean good? And I go, don't you ever stop fighting and struggling against that sin. Because in the moment that you, you, you stop struggling, stop the fight, and you give in, you demonstrate that you were never in the faith to begin with. The Bible is very clear that you will be saved if you persevere to the end. To the end. And then when we get to the end, here's what's going to happen. At the end, you're not going to sit there and go, hey, are you proud of me, Jesus? I persevered to the end. No, we're going to sit there and say, it's because of your sanctifying work in my life that I was able to persevere to the end, not because I was holding on, but you were holding on to me. See how that works? And so God comes back. And so we, we, we come and we, we, we understand this. He says, examine yourself. I think this is what he's doing. I think what he's really talking about is three things we need to examine. Our actions, our motivations, and our affections. I think the actions is, is do we find ourselves constantly seeking, pursuing the will of God, and seeking to align our lives with his rule? Is that something that happens, not only that you're seeking, but in your life, you're seeing a progressive sanctification. Yes, we got some sticking points. Yes, we've got some sins that, man, just don't seem to want to go away. It's like people coming and visiting the house for the weekend, right? Hey, nice to see you, but you got to go. Now we're going to stay a couple more days. No, and this is, this is the idea. You just, you, you know, you got to go. But, but the idea here is, is, is that for the most part, you begin to see your life more and more over time, looking more and more like your Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Christians are really, really good at behavior modification. All of a sudden, they begin to understand, well, I can't go around just dropping four-letter words all over the place. They're going to be on to me. So I need to kind of clear that up. So they come into the house, and all of a sudden, well, I'm not going to say that one. I'm going to say that one. I'm going to say that one. But the truth of the matter is they kind of clean it up, but the truth is their heart is still sinful. Nothing's ever happened with their sin. So the, the, here's my question is, what is your motivation? Is your motivation, do you find that pursuing God is only simply because, A, is because you're hoping that if you're good enough, he's going to save you. B, you're going to be good enough that he's going to answer the prayer and give you whatever it is that your idolatrous heart desires. Or three, is your motivation simply because you want to honor and glorify Jesus Christ? Then there's affections. Affections. I, I did this. It's actually three. Three affections. Affections is what? Is do you love Jesus? Okay, so this is where you really have to parse through this stuff. This is where you really have to look within your heart. This, this doesn't just come out. This is where you have to sit back and go, are my affections truly for God for his people, for his purposes, and for his work? Or are they greater for the things of this world? Because the part of regeneration is that God would give us a new want or give us a new heart and give us a new, whole new group of affections. Now, let me warn something in here. It's possible if you're not careful, if you're not in the word of God, being sensitive to the move of the Holy Spirit, it is very easy at some point in your life, at, at moment, moment, one moment, just sit there and go, 
The truth is right now, my affections are greater for the things of this world. But the believer, through self-examination, sees that through the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit and says, man, that's, that's not who I want to be. It's not who I want to be. It's not who I truly love. It's not what I really, really care about. It's the person of Jesus Christ. And so there we have it. That's Joab. That's the end of Joab's story. What's the end of your story? If he welcomes you in and says, well done, good and faithful servant, it's not going to be because of your work. It's going to be because of the work of Jesus Christ in your life. And that's only going to come if you sit there and understand and recognize him that I can't be saved through anything I do, only through the completed work of Christ, his death, burial, resurrection. God, forgive me, save me. He will. And he'll not only save you, he'll change you. I love that. No person who is truly saved wants to remain the same. That's the difference between somebody who is saved and not saved. The apathetic individual who comes week in and week out or it comes once a month, or it comes once every eight weeks, whatever it is, and just goes, hey, we just got to keep doing it. This is what we do at Christians. But never finds joy and a walk with Jesus, might need to sit back and do some self-examination. And if you come to that point and you say, I don't know Jesus, you know what you do? You call out, save my soul, Jesus. Save me. And you sit there and go, how do you know you say, man, just keep saying it. There's been times where I've I've sat there and go, God, I don't know if I'm in the faith or not, but the truth of the matter is, if I'm not, save my soul, Jesus. I think I am, but save my soul, Jesus. Just call out to him. Call out to him for his mercy and grace, and he will not turn you away. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you. We thank you for today. Going a little long. I thank you for the graciousness of our people to be able to listen. God, I just pray right now in the name of Jesus that you would work in us that your Holy Spirit would illuminate in us. Lord, I can't, I neither want to talk anybody out of their salvation or into their salvation. That's why we need your Holy Spirit. Romans eight sixteen says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Spirit, bear witness one way or another this morning. That's my prayer, bear witness, either for or against, and let us respond appropriately. We either leave with absolute joy, respond in absolute joy, knowing, yes, I struggle in many ways, but I know that I'm born again. Thank you, Jesus. Or we turn and we say, I'm not born again. And we call out for your grace and mercy. Let those be the responses this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? We'll just take a few more moments. Just stand. And and, uh, there might be somebody who wants to know more about Christ. I want to talk with you about it. We want to counsel with you about that. Please come forward for that. And and, and just, just, just do the work with the Lord, all right?